Welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Heath Brady, the show where we talk about the tough stuff, the hard stuff, the place where we ask the questions that some, if not most, Christians might be afraid to ask or even answer. I am your theological coordinator. Thanks for hanging out with us again tonight. We are continuing our study called Hashtag Blessed. We are going to continue looking at the section of scripture that is located in Matthew chapter 5, uh, known as the Beatitudes, the blessed are the so-and-so, for they shall receive such-and-such passage of scripture. It's the uh, first public, real public speaking engagement that Jesus that Jesus gets up and speaks in front of tens, if not thousands, if thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that have been following around, following him around as he's begun his public ministry. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 8, we come to this interesting beatitude. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've been talking about this passage of scripture because our series is called Hashtag Blessed. And we've been asking the question, what does it really mean to be blessed? What does being blessed or feeling blessed actually look like? We've talked about how this word here in the Greek, blessed, the word for blessed in the Greek means happy or fortunate or lucky. And so Jesus is giving us a dissertation, a progressive a progression of sanctification in one dissertation that we call the Beatitudes, where he unveils who actually are the ones that are blessed, happy, fortunate, and lucky. And so we come to this one, and right here is kind of where things begin to shift. Things begin to take a turn. This is the point in Christ's dissertation where, the, where his words are really going to start making these people and us very uncomfortable. So we're going to talk about some real talk tonight. In this one beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In this one beatitude, Jesus is going to answer three very difficult questions. The first question is, who gets to know who God is? Who gets to see him, in other words? The second question he is going to answer is, how good must we be to know him? And the third question, and probably the most toughest question, is why have they, or we, not seen him yet? So let's just dig right in. As I said, the first question he is going to answer is, who gets to know God? Who is it that gets to know who God is? Who gets to see God? Well, the answer is right there in print, the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what does it mean to be pure? What does a pure heart actually look like? Well, this word here for pure, it means to have virtue. It speaks, it's, it speaks to one's integrity. It talks about one's character. It literally is at the very core of righteousness, the righteousness of of Christ that we've talked so much about, especially in the last couple of weeks. And you know, in our culture, we hear this a lot. And frankly, I'm sick of it. But we hear this a lot. You have to follow your heart. You have to listen to your heart. What does your heart tell you? And while that might sound or come across as some very sage and sound wisdom or counsel, it's actually very foolish. 
And the reason why is because your heart lies to you. Our emotions lie to us. They're the response to how we feel about something that happens to us or is done or said to us or, or, or an experience that we're having. Don't get me wrong. Our feelings put us on alert, either good or bad. But to make decisions based on those feelings is not always wise. In fact, I would argue that most often the decisions that we make emotionally are very foolish and sometimes irrational. Scripture is very, very interesting on this point. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So in other words, our heart, our feelings, our emotions, they lie to us. Scripture in this verse clearly says that our heart is desperately sick. What does that mean? Well, because of sin, sin has placed a curse on all of humanity, and it has made our hearts blackened and dirty and filthy and wretched. And so why in the world would we ever want to trust our feelings that come from the place of darkness and desperate, being a place that is desperately sick? Our heart, our feelings, and our emotions lie to us. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about the pure heart, the purified heart, if you will. This virtuous heart, it belongs to someone who has real integrity. It is a person of their word. At the end of the day, everyone needs to be able to believe in what you and I say we are. That is what integrity is. And if you don't have integrity, people don't like you. People don't trust you. And so apart from Christ, I would argue that we really lack true, authentic integrity. Why? Because we have nothing to base it on other than our own perspective or our own definition of what integrity or pureness of heart might look like. It's because a person who has been brought through this progression of sanctification that we've been talking about, that person now has the righteousness of Christ as their desire, and shows Christ-like mercy to others. So those are the ones who get to know God, the one who has a virtuous heart, the one who has a purified heart, the one who hungers and thirsts for more and more and more of Christ's righteousness and is merciful to others. The second question that Jesus answers in this, in this beatitude is how good must we be to know him? I would imagine that in real time, as I always like to speak in context when I'm teaching through Scripture, in real time, these tens of thousands of people, these are good law-abiding Jewish people. They have been following all of the traditions and all of the P's and Q's that the Pharisees and Sadducees had established for them, thinking that all of those things were pleasing to God, and if you will, gaining good favor with God. And yet Jesus is basically telling them something so countercultural. This is why things begin to shift gears in a dramatic way for these people and for us today. Why? Because just like truth, purity has become relative in our culture. Humankind has come up with its own definition of what virtue actually looks like. 
humankind has come up with its own hoops to jump through in order to get to the end result. We've talked about the hub theory, that in our culture, in society, in our world today, there is this hub theory that we call relative truth, that the hub is at the center and that like the spokes on a wheel, all roads lead to the same place. And whatever your truth is defines what that center hub actually is. It's heaven, it's utopia, it's a higher plane of existence, whatever form of religious belief or non-religious belief anyone uh, chooses to follow, that determines the end result of that road or, or spoke that you travel on towards that hub. And just like truth has become relative, virtue, integrity, purity have also become relative, relative to the individual. And this has just grown and grown and grown over time. I've mentioned so many times before that over 20 years ago when I was a youth pastor was the first time I ever heard talk like this. And now it's the norm. So heaven forbid that somebody like me should especially get on a microphone and talk about an ultimate authentic form of purity or virtue or integrity. But these aren't my words. These are Christ's words here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 that the pure of heart get to see God. But the question he answers here is, how good must one be to know him? So let me give you an analogy. We've all seen a bullseye. Many of us have played darts before. We've all seen the target. We've all done target practice. And the goal, the aim is to hit the bullseye, right? And because of sin, because of the curse of sin on humanity, we are never, ever going to be capable of hitting the bullseye. We might almost hit it. We might be just a fraction of a millimeter outside of that. We might try and try and try so hard to be good, to be good persons, but still never hit the bullseye. We aren't capable of doing it. We're not because we're humans, because we are fallen and we are imperfect. And because of the curse of sin, the end result is we will never be able to hit that bullseye. What is that bullseye? The bullseye is God's standard of what good looks like. What does it take to get into heaven? The standard is perfection. We are not capable of achieving perfection. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 is very clear. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in a different translation of that verse, a different biblical translation of that verse, it says that everyone has fallen short of God's glorious, perfect standard. Romans chapter 3, just a few verses earlier in verse 10, says that there is none righteous, not even one. There is nobody, past, present, future, on this side of eternity, on this side of heaven, that is righteous. No one. And just in case you might be thinking, well, I'm a good person. Trust me, I think all the time, I'm a good person. God must really like me. I'm fooling myself if I think that. If I think that my righteous deeds impress God, there's a verse in the Bible that speaks to that too. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. That Hebrew word there for filthy rags, it's literally, it's literally referring to used menstrual cloths. 
So if we want to think that our righteous and wonderful and good deeds are impressing to God, that it, that it grants us favor with God no matter how good we try to be, he looks at our righteous deeds, those things done in our own strength, even things that are dedicated to him, if we do them in our own righteous state or try to, he looks at them and renders them as useless, used, dirty, disgusting menstrual cloths. It's disgusting. Just like that verse talks about the heart, that the heart is disgusting and sick. The only good that is enough to see God is the righteousness of Christ in us. What does that look like? Well, last week, just as a reminder, I gave an analogy about the trading of robes. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins and mine. He died on a cross of wood and paid the penalty for those sins. That sin nature that we are born into that causes us to sin, he bore the price, the penalty, the required atonement for those sins on the cross. And if we receive that gift of salvation, there is a transaction that takes place. It's as if he looks at our filthy, disgusting forms of righteousness, our, our sin nature, these dirty, disgusting robes, and he removes those robes off of us. He takes off his robe of righteousness and wraps it around us and clothes us in his righteousness and then takes our dirty, filthy, disgusting robes and puts them on himself. Scripture says that God showed love to us in that while we were yet sinners, he made Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. That's what that analogy is explaining. The one who has been saved is seen as righteous because of Jesus Christ covering their sin with his righteousness. So how good must we be to know him? We can't be good enough to know him. The only good that is in us is the righteousness of Christ. Which leads me to the final question that Jesus answers. Why have they, or why have, the, why have we, not seen him yet? As I said, these are probably really good Orthodox Jewish people. And they've been following these traditions. They've been following their leadership and, and doing all of these things thinking that they are impressing God or pleasing God, and yet he's telling them that the pure in heart, those who have been refined, those who have been clothed in my righteousness, those are the ones who can see God. He's basically, selling, he's basically telling them, you've all been sold a bill of goods. Nothing that you have done is considered righteous. Nothing that you have done grants you access to God. Nothing. So you see why this is starting to make people feel really uncomfortable or why it could potentially make us feel uncomfortable. Why? Because we like to think that we've cornered the market. Everyone's got their own definition of what's good and what's bad. But as I said, there is an ultimate truth. There is an ultimate standard. There is an ultimate right and wrong, and that is defined by God. And that perfect, glorious, holy standard is something that we will never hit on our own. We can't do it. And this is why they, this is why we, have not seen him. The short answer to this question is this. They have been, just like them, we have been trying to be good by our own efforts. We've been trying to be good 
on our own feelings and by our own definition of what good actually is. And we have not become spiritually bankrupt. Those who are continuously trying to do life on their own and on their own own terms, they have not come to the end of themselves yet. The idea of being clothed in Christ's righteousness is the furthest thing from their minds, those who have not become spiritually bankrupt and those who are not saved. They don't know yet what God's glorious standard actually is. And when confronted with it, refusing to make the choice to accept the gift of salvation puts them even further from God's glorious standard. The long answer to this question is this, that their hearts, that our hearts, have not been purified by the righteousness of Christ. What does that look like? Well, as I said, blessed are the pure in heart. This word here for pure, it means virtuous. It also means to be refined, like with fire, like precious metal, like gold, like silver. To be refined, for you know, when silver, when gold, when precious metals are refined, they go through a burning process. They go through the fire to have all of their impurities removed. And so I have a story to kind of drive home this point. It's a story about a woman who went to go and see how a silversmith practices the art of refining silver. It's a very famous story. And it says that the story goes like this, that she watched the silversmith, and he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire, where the flames were the hottest, as to burn away all of the impurities. And the woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. And she thought again about a verse that says, this is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, it says that he sits, he being God, he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to actually sit there in front of the fire the whole entire time that the silver was being refined. And the man, chuckling to himself, laughed. And answered and said, yes, he not only has to sit there holding the silver, he has to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it's in the fire. Because if the silver was left a moment too long in the flames, it would be utterly destroyed. And if it wasn't left in there long enough, it wouldn't be fully cleansed or refined. And this woman falls silent for a moment. And then she asks the silversmith, How do you know when the silver is fully refined? And this man looked at her and said, Oh, that's easy. I know when the silver has been fully refined, when I can see my own image in it. What a powerful, powerful story. What a powerful analogy. Do you catch the connection there? The purified heart, the virtuous heart, is the heart that God's own image is seen in. Are you starting to see the connection here, how this progression works? If you want to see God, if you want to know God, Christ must first refine your heart. So my question to you is, can God see his image in you? 
What does that look like? Well, you can't be pure in heart without receiving the Lord's mercy. You can't receive the Lord's mercy without starving for his righteousness first. See, we're going backwards in the progression. You can't be pure in heart without receiving the Lord's mercy. You can't receive the Lord's mercy without starving for his righteousness first. And you won't starve for the Lord's righteousness until you have been humbled by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ won't humble you until you have actually mourned over the sin in your life that he has exposed to you. And you won't mourn over the sin in your life, those things that have caused division between you and Almighty God, until you have become spiritually bankrupt. This is the sanctification process. This is what we have been talking about. Who are those that are truly blessed, happy, fortunate, lucky? They are the ones who have come to the end of themselves, that have become spiritually bankrupt, and have been therefore offered the kingdom. And they have received the kingdom and shown the sin in their lives that kept them separated from Almighty God. And they see those things, they see that way of life, and they mourn over that. And Jesus comforts them. And it is because of that comfort that they are now humbled. They are brought to a place of humility. And it is because of that humility, it is because of that place of under that place of feeling the Lord's mercy that they hunger and thirst and are never satisfied with enough of Christ's righteousness on and in them. And it is because of them never being satisfied with enough of Jesus Christ that they now begin to understand what the Lord's mercy actually looks like and how much others need it in their own lives. And that drives them to a place of virtue, and that is the person in whose heart the Lord sees his image. And those are the people who see God. Those are the people who know who God is. Why? Because they've been walking hand in hand with Jesus Christ through the sanctification process. They have an intimate, personal, one-on-one relationship with the creator of the universe. So my question now is, Where are you with God? Do you want to know him? Do you want to see him? Where are you at in this process? He waits for you. He wants you to come to him. He invites you. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation to a relationship with the creator of the universe. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you, he wants to bless you. He wants to make you thoroughly, authentically, completely blessed, happy, fortunate, and lucky. He really wants to bless you in this way. He wants to see his image in you. And when his image is in you, that is when you know that you are truly blessed. Blessed. Happy, fortunate, lucky are those in whom God can see his own image, for they shall see him too. And that is all I have to say about that. You've been listening to another episode of Real Talk with Heath Brady. I am your theological coordinator. We are now 
available on any platform that you get your podcasts from. So you can catch up on previous episodes. Make sure that you tell a friend to tell a friend what's going on here on the channel. Invite them to hang out with us. You can also follow me on all of the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've got a big surprise for you in next week's episode. We are going to have a very, very special guest as we move forward in our series, Hashtag Bless. So until next time, we'll catch you on another episode of Real Talk. Until then, this is the Theological Coordinator saying, peace.